What do you want? What do you want? They'll say, oh, I want my husband to be happy at his job. He's just had such a uh Uh-huh. What do you want? Well, I want my son to grow up and be able to find the right girl. Got it. What do you want? And finally, they will say, you know, my problem is I don't know what I want. Because they've been secondary for so long at home and at work. It's become a habit. It's hard to break. So that's where it all begins and being held back. And if you have that going on, when you get into the workplace, if you don't see yourself as a talented, smart leader in the mirror, how can you project that in the workplace? And that's what holds women back, for starters. What's your internal success story? You know, the deep down beliefs you have about how big your life really can be. Is your internal story a big story, or is it filled with fear and self-sabotage that keeps you playing small? When you make the decision to play bigger, you're also influencing everyone around you. Playing bigger requires a shift. The shift is what happens when you let go of the self-limiting beliefs that keep you from stepping into your authentic, powerful, beautiful self. It's a shift from the probabilities into the possibilities of your big, amazing life. My favorite conversations are when I get to hear how people shift into playing bigger. This podcast is your invitation to listen to others that have made the shift and also serve as a catalyst to explore the shift needed for you to play bigger. And no, I'm sitting right here cheering you on. Hey there, I'm Tracy Spears, speaker, author, coach, and head cheerleader for anyone trying to play bigger. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce you to someone that's been on my personal board of directors for several years. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I'm going to think maybe has even invented the idea of playing bigger. So I'm super excited to introduce you to Pam McKissick. And Pam, we too, before we do your bio, let's just kind of jump in together. I'm, I'm asking people to give us a sense of where you're sitting right now so that for my visual audience, kind of give us a sense of where you are right now. I'm on my ranch, which is 80 acres, and I'm sitting in a room that is wood paneled and very Western looking. It used to be the barn for my Icelandic horses. So I could come out in my nightshirt right into the barn, take care of my animals. But when I got up to about five horses, it got a little dangerous to come wandering in in your nightshirt and everybody was stomping around. So I built a barn and made this into my office. And from my space now, I can look out and see beautiful green pastures and trees and the horses in the field and the fodder in the shot. And it's all great. Nice. You have tried very hard to give me a an appreciation for horses. And I want to say this, <laughs> I'm still scared to death of them. And, you know, I don't know what that's about. I do know what it's about. It's a, it's a story from third grade, which I'm not going to tell right now. Hey, now I'm working that story. Listen, uh, so, okay, the short version is okay. I was the one of the biggest third graders, of course, in when I went to Girl Scout camp, which is a, the other piece of this. And so they gave me the biggest horse. Right. Which that made no sense. So first of all, my self-esteem took a hit and then I had to jump on this horse and they were saying, don't worry, just follow. You know, it was like one of those following line. And the minute I got on that horse, Pam, that horse like got out of line and sped past the person that was leading. And all I did was just scream and hold on for dear life. And all I remember is somebody reaching in front of me after what seemed like a very long time and finally got my horse to stop. And that was it. So I understand go. completely. It's your energy. And you brought amazing energy to that animal and he or she responded. I went to take lessons early on and 
They put me on a mare. I, I picked her out and they said, don't ride her because she's so calm and we can't even get her to walk. Same thing. Got on that damn mare. She took off across the arena. We jumped. I don't know how to jump. We jumped three different bars of things. And I was screaming all the way, but my energy was so intense and the horse picks up on me. <sighs> Interesting. So, hmm, we'll unpack that. In my yeah, next at a later date. <laughs> well, that maybe that's why equine therapy is such a big deal. Yes. Yeah, I mean, For I don't sure. know. I yeah. haven't done it. Maybe I should just go hug a horse. I don't know. Listen, I I have been to your ranch, and you the you you could not even describe how beautiful that piece of property you all have out there. It's just it's really spectacular and magical. And you did a pretty good job of describing it. But I just want to add to it. Whatever you all pictured, picture it even better than that. So so kind of jump in here with me. So you know, this podcast is about shifting out loud. And typically I will read through a bio and then I'll introduce the guest. But as I was reading your bio, I thought there were a lot of shifts in your bio. And so if you will indulge me, if you don't mind jumping in here and telling us a little bit about you and we'll kind of connect that to the shifting out loud as well. So, so how does this all start for Pam McKissick? Well, of course I was raised in Oklahoma and I couldn't wait to see it in my rear view mirror. And I left home when I was about 18 and went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I thought I was going to be this great superstar on Broadway. And as it turned out, I auditioned right out of school for the WNEWFM Metro Media job and got it. And it was the first five women broadcasters on radio. And to give you an idea, it was the 1960s and women were on radio. They couldn't do it because they wouldn't let you advertise cigarettes or alcohol, which were the big, you know, money makers. Because also, you were a woman? Yes, because okay. we were women. And you forget in those times, which are ancient, it was quite different. You couldn't get a loan as a woman unless a man went with you to the bank, even if you had a job and he did not. If you got pregnant, you had to quit your job. You couldn't get a divorce easily. I mean, it was Handmaid's Tale, basically. And we're, you know, that's why I hate 2022. What's getting into right now. But I was at the station. I got hired. And we had our pictures on buses and benches in New York. And we had, you know, we were celebrities and it was all very cool for a young woman. And they had to approve your dates. You had to, you know, they had to bring a date up to the station for them to approve him. And being a closeted lesbian, that was a real anxious moment because I had to go find a guy, not tell him why he was going up there with me. We would go to a very fancy dinner paid for by the studio, the station, and then I'm bye-bye. I'm through with him. So I have to go find another one. <laughs> There's no kiss goodnight. Is that what you're saying? There's none of that. A poor man. So, you know, I could have complained. I could have come out. I could have done a lot of things, but it was the 60s. I just wanted to keep my job. I was happy. And I said nothing. So by the time we got to the 70s, I was in the ad business. And I was the VP of a largest ad agency in the Southeast. And my boss gave a guy that worked with me a much bigger bonus than he gave me. And I found out about it. And I said, you know, why? We do the same thing. And you say I'm even better at it than he is. And he said, well, you know, the classic thing, he's married with five kids and you're single. And I said, so he gets extra money for impregnating his wife five times? I said, what would he get if he impregnated her 10 times? It didn't go over well. I did not get a bonus. <laughs> I did no not. bonus. You're not getting a bonus. No. I got a little raise, but, you know, I did definitely had a mark on me. And then in the 80s, I was with Disney, and I was the ultimately Walt Disney World and then the Disney Studios, and I love Disney. But they did have the dress code thing, and there's not much to dress code on a guy, right? It's like, don't do facial hair. 
But the women, they would look at your hose, the texture of your hose, the color of your hose. If you had a slit in your dress, any man could walk up to you, put a dime next to your earring. And if they could see the earring around the edge of the dime, you were out of code. You had to go home. So I took that on as, you know, an unfair thing and even got the president of Walt Disney World involved. And it did become a topic. And I think it began to change things to make it more gender fair. And then by the time I was in the 90s, I was running a fairly good-sized national firm, and I was a C-suite executive, and I had a couple of guys who worked for me that were on a call, and I joined, and they didn't know I would be joining, and they were talking about homosexuals and saying very derogatory things about male homosexuals and a lot that discriminated against them. And so I said, it's an interesting conversation you all are having. And one of them said, "Uh, I'm sorry, who's speaking? And I said, the lesbian who signs your paychecks. (laughs) And that was the beginning of my full circle after decades coming from silence into some speaking role. And I guess I tell that story just because you don't have to be special or super talented or anything to be an advocate for women. All you have to do is stand up at every moment in every situation and speak the truth as you know it Wow. Listen, I, as you know, I was chicken, not in the sixties, but in the eighties, nineties and two thousands. So it was hard. And that shift for you to be able to say the lesbian that signs your check, like I know that didn't, you know, I know you enough to know that you didn't have a choice, but to say that, but I know that probably felt uncomfortable, but it was also liberating. That had to be a big shift for you. That was, that, that might be the definition of shift out loud, right? In that moment. <laughs> Yeah, I think for for me, it came from hurt. You want to know the truth. Because when you, I always take care of my employees with the feeling that they're my family and they need the right insurance. If I can give it to them, they need raises when they have earned it. I mean, I, I want to do that. So I guess in response, I think, okay, they're going to like me. But if they don't care about me in the same way and don't mind if I'm discriminated against or if I can't have gay marriage or if I can't, you know, whatever, then I'm hurt. And so that hurt, out of that comes the boldness to say, you know, hey, I'm the person signing the checks and you've forgotten that. And, you know, I want to go back to what you said about I I had this experience about the 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 man that had five children. And there's a lot of discrimination that people are still doing around especially for lesbians or single women, people that do not have children. I can remember, you know, being told, well, Tracy can do it. She does on Saturday. She can come in on Saturday. She doesn't have any kids or Tracy can stay late because she doesn't have any children. Right. Like that's, that is so unfair. And yet that was just the way it was. Yes. Right. And the thing that really made that possible is that we never, if you're in hiding as a gay person, You don't ever talk about, I'm having a terrible weekend, my spouse is sick, or I'm having a wonderful weekend, we're going away to, you don't talk about any of that. So consequently, what you present to workers and family is a blank life, only the things that are work-related, you know, very strictly home-related. So even your relatives can start saying, well, you could take care of John while, you know, my husband and I run off to the Bahamas, or you could take care of our three cats or whatever. You know, it's just like things get dumped on you, but who let that happen? We did not stand up and say, hey, I have a life too. That's right. 
Yeah. Well, I was just a giant chicken. (laughs) And you know, my parents disowned me. And so for me, that connection was if your family disowns you, certainly your company's going to disown you. And so until I got with Rosemary, really, she was the first time I started you know, presenting myself as a lesbian. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, she made me (laughs) like I, I didn't do it. I was like, Oh gosh, let's just, let's just downplay this a little bit. Let's not hold hands walking down Cherry Street, but you and your wife who have been together over 30 years. Can we talk about that at all? Yeah. Yeah. 32 years. And you, you have I mean, the shift out loud, your wife is just is the same as mine. Like there's, you know, you're not going to put baby in a corner for sure. You're certainly not going to do that. And yeah, you've been able to navigate that in a way that has garnered a lot of respect for your marriage. And so it's been fun for me to see that example, to see the way you all, you know, have been embraced by our community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by the way, as have Rosemary and I. So I'm super excited about that. Certainly, yeah. Yes. Well, you listen, you, you've stopped short. Well, I'm going to go back to you're at Disney. Give me the sense of the shift there. Why do you leave Disney? What happens next? Oh my gosh. Well, I had taken some courses at Claremont Theology School. I've always been extremely interested in theology because we had a family with, you know, Catholics, Baptists, Christian scientists, Methodists. I mean, you, you can't name a religion that we didn't have a family member. And everybody thought everybody else was going to hell. So I was just very pragmatic. I wanted to find out which team had the best chance of not going to hell. Right? So I was taking theology classes. And one day while I'm at Disney, I get a call. And they said, you've been awarded the president's scholarship at the Claremont School of Theology. And I said, I didn't apply for that. I, and they said, no, we don't, you know, that isn't how we do it. We think you'd be great. And I'm like, look, I am extremely interested in that, but I can promise you, I won't end up being a minister or priest. I'll come in and I'll learn about it and I'll get excited and then I'll ultimately move on. She said, well, don't worry about that. You just, if you want to take it, take it. Okay. So I left Disney to do that. Went to the desert, as I think is biblical, <laughs> to Palm Springs, and I began going to school. And I was with someone else, not my current partner. And I go home and I meet the love of my life, Cheryl, on vacation. Now my life is completely screwed up, right? I'm about to go into this theology thing, and I've got this bombshell-looking woman who's, you know, everyone thinks is straight. She's got the blonde hair and splashy and so she, I tell her what I'm doing, and she tells me, look, if you think I am going to sit on the front row of the church and pretend we're not together, Cheryl is a spiritualist and an astrologer, and her parents were psyche. She's psyche. So that's the other realm from dogma and religion, right? And she went along with me to church a couple of times. And I remember in the Book of Common Prayer, we were chanting something like, I am but a lowly worm. And she said out loud in church, what are you saying? Where did you get that? I said, Shh, it's, you know, it's an old text. It's, and she's like, you cannot say words like that. They go in on you. And she was just appalled, right? Because her spirituality is so different. And of course, my mother believed that way. And over time, I just realized that Cheryl was my life. That's where I wanted to be. I liked her religion better than the condemning religions that I had been brought up in. And we set off on our adventure, and 32 years later, we're still at it. Oh, my gosh. 
So you leave <laughs> good, good choice and so, so far and what? So you're now with Cheryl, you're in the desert. What happens next? What's the next well, shift? We were going to go back to Tulsa where our families were. And she said, you know, I've always wanted to start a production company in Los Angeles. And I said, I've already done all that. I mean, I've been out there twice. I've worked with Disney. She said, that's what I want to do. Back we go. And we start a production company. We begin writing and producing movies of the week and selling development deals to big studios. And it's a very tough business, but we were there several years and had enough success to pay our bills. And then she got terribly ill. And then my dad got ill and her dad got ill and, and kind of the bottom fell out. And we came back to help, help the families take care of them. And after a couple of years, we ended up staying because we got into the lifestyle and the ranch. And I'm not sorry we did that at all, but it was quite a traumatic time uh, getting coming from the television and production business and ending up in Tulsa. There were there, at that time, there weren't and that didn't mesh, you know? Yeah. Well, you listen, you, you have told some really fun stories. I don't know if they're, if you're willing to share any of those. I mean, when you say movies of the week and you were at some big tables, come on, I'm prompting you. Tell us a little bit of, of what that life was like. Who were some of the people that you were elbow to elbow with? Well, some of them are the old time. The, the most fun Cheryl ever had was we were asked to do the anniversary special for Carol Burnett. And we got to, and most of the young people don't even know now who Carol Burnett is, but she was a very famous physical comedian. And she and her team, you know, Harvey Corman and everybody were there. We got to go to the studio to work with them there at CBS. And on the way over, of course, I'm a uptight, crazy, you know, everything has to be perfect. And Cheryl's like, it's cosmic. It's all going to work out. So we're driving over there and she's got on this nice vest and a cute little starched white shirt. And I look over and I look at her chest and her armpits and the entire vest has molted off onto her shirt in this bizarre kind of awful. I, you know, you have, you can't stop but look at it. I said, Oh my God, look at you. What happened? She said, Oh, it's my new vest. I don't know what happened. I said, it's molting all over you. We're going to CBS to see Carol Burnett. We have to, I have to get you another shirt. She says, you know, just relax. It's all going to be okay. I said, well, how's it going to be okay? What are you going to say? You're going to say like, Oh, I, my shirt fell apart or, you know, so we go over there and I'm like a wreck and she's very calm. We go up to the CBS to the floor we're supposed to go to. All the lights go out in the entire building. They don't come back on. So we meet all these people in the dark and they bring in candles and sit them around so we can see each other. We do our whole meeting in the dark and we get back in the car. And Cheryl said, I'm always protected. I said, man, I don't know what you've got, but I'm sticking with you because that was just amazing. That's a that's a funny twist. I didn't know that part of the story. I love that. Yeah, well, she is protected and you are smart to stick with her. I'm trying to stick <laughs> as close to her as I can as well. So, 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 all right. So, so let's, so you also start writing books and I don't think a lot of people realize that. Like you all have penned how many books? Let's see how many have I read. Probably eight. Yeah, seven uh, or eight, I was going to say. Seven or eight. You know, they're, they're all romance, and most of them are situated on a ranch or in the country. And we have a publisher, Bullstrokes Books, and they've been kind enough to like them and put them in print. But, you know, we kind of got off of that. We were trying to bring them into the movie end of things, and so far that hasn't happened. So I don't know what we're going to do next. Which one do you think, I'm going to tell you the one I think would be a good movie. Do you know which one is my favorite? 
I have two. My favorite would be Summer Winds. That's my favorite. And the second would be Too Hot to Ride. Okay. That's, that, that would be the order of my, how I experience your books too. And the summer winds, Kristen Stewart, who is Rosemary's favorite, like, you know, like she, if you said, who's like your celebrity crush? She, of course she would say nobody. It's, you know, you're the only one I'm like, but if you, if yeah. you push her a little bit, she'd go, well, definitely Kristen Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> she would be great in summer winds. That's all I'm saying. I think, mm-hmm. I think who, who do you think would play in summer winds? Do you know? I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea. You don't spend any time with that. Yeah, not not your thing. I got you. I got you. All right. So let's go back to you then. Now you are in Oklahoma. You're writing a bunch of books and you get tapped on the shoulder to be the president of TV Guide Television Group. At first, I started out as the general manager for preview networks, and then they ended up becoming TV Guide Network. And I was the head of the channel which was a great experience. And then, you know, as News Corp became part of that, then I moved up to president of the entertainment group. And then finally, after seven years, that ended. I had been courted to go back to Los Angeles, and that would have been my fourth journey there. And I just didn't want to do that. So I was cajoled and caressed and all those things. I wouldn't do it. So finally, we came to a parting of the ways and I left. And then I was trying to find a way to to make a living in Oklahoma with my background. And I came upon this fellow who had an auction firm and we ended up being a national auction firm. And it was real estate. It was interesting. It was new. I became an auctioneer in order to be able to relate to the auction people and staff and so it was like a whole new life. And then after 12 years, I ended that. So you were finally on stage doing auctioneering, right? I always try to get back to the, you know, the microphone and the stage. <laughs> That's actually the first time I met you. You were auctioneering at one of the, oh my gosh, let me think. Do you remember, do you remember this? I think it was the, it was the, the Gator, right? Wasn't it? The Equality Col- Gala, maybe? Equality Gala at the Coliseum, I think. Yeah. You and Cheryl were there. And so I knew you and. I was really scared of you <laughs> because your reputation, you know, as a no nonsense, tell it like it is, you know, CEO, which by the way is all true. Yet there is this soft underbelly of you that when you, and you said it a minute ago when you said you care deeply about your people, you want to make sure they're getting the right benefits and all that. And I, I love that you are, you seem to be the perfect combination. Uh, being able to hold people accountable and yet let them know that you would run through walls for them. So I, I, that's what I aspire to have that same quality. And you, you definitely have modeled that over our years together, me watching you, hearing some of your stories. So I, for me, that's a shift that a lot of people never make. They shift, you know, the, the shift from being able to care deeply about some yet hold them accountable. That's not an easy shift. Have you always been good at both of those or was that learned? You know, I think it's, if you don't work for me, you may see that differently because it's, it's like having a strict parent, right? You don't appreciate them until you've grown up. So I'm not sure that all my staff would feel that way. I think I'm very honest. So let's say that you beg me to make you some position. And and I say, if I do that, you're going to outgrow your experience pretty quickly. Because we're ultimately going to need someone who knows how to do this, this, and then. So when we come up against that wall, you know, I'll have to either put somebody over you or replace you. And that's not a good feeling. 
but they'll fight. No, 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 I can be the one. So if you do that, and then the day comes where you have to say, remember that conversation, it doesn't make it any better. They don't feel good about it. They're not happy about it. They don't like you for it. So it's a tough tightrope to be honest and, and, you know, kind at the same time, but still the company is has to move forward or it can't pay the people, any of them, you know. You know, who doesn't like that is someone that doesn't, someone that doesn't like accountability is someone that's not doing what they need to be doing, right? So you have figured that out, as have I finally, to be able to, you know, create that accountability piece. And the shift is I'm still going to hate those super tough conversations, but yet I know I need to have them. Brene Brown says being clear is kind, being unclear is unkind. And I, I think that's, I think that's something that I'll ask you this question that women in general have a tendency, and I don't like to stereotype, but I'll, my experience tells me that have a tendency to think about how the other person's going to feel when you're trying to hold them accountable instead of just holding them accountable. Is that, what do you think? You think that's true? I do think it's true. I think women mince their words more. Men have trouble getting it up to, you know, say the words because they don't want that confrontation. But sometimes when they do, they just blurt it out and it's done. Women want to make everybody feel good. And so they, they mince words a little bit. And I don't think it does them justice in the workplace. Agreed. If, if I were to ask you this question, like what, what are some of the things you've observed over the years that you think hold women back? Like what do you think has been, you've, you've interviewed thousands of people, men and women, and what has your experience been as you look in the rear view of, you know, kind of where, from where you started and where you are now, what do you believe holds women back, especially in the workplace? Well, you know, when we get to the workplace, that isn't where we start being held back. It starts in our home, right? In the way we were raised. And if we can get over that, then it's in the way we allow ourselves to be talked about, talked to. It's the way we talk to ourselves, right? We're very self-critical, women are. And people will say, oh, no, I'm not. I'm, you know, well, we start in the morning when we get out of the bed and we walk into the bathroom and look at ourselves in the mirror and our hair is all messed up. We have on no makeup, you know, and we look like the last hurrah. And we, what do we say? Oh my God, I've got bags under my eyes. Oh, I've got to lose 10 pounds. Maybe I need a facelift. I wonder if my insurance pays for the tummy tuck. You know, we're just at ourselves. Boom, boom, boom. And I always say men do not hammer on themselves like that. Every fat cell is a celebration. They, (laughs) I've told you before, I had a boss who was so bald, it was painful. And I felt sorry for him. And one day he said, you know, I'm so grateful I'm bald. And I said, really? And he said, oh, yeah, it means you have more testosterone, which means you have more sex drive, which means you get laid more often. And so I thought, just say, thank God I'm bald. You know, from a woman's perspective, if you get in the shower and you lose five hairs, you have to put yourself on suicide watch because you're going, what's happening to me? You know, my hair is falling out. Oh, my God, first my face, then my hair. So we've got to be kinder to ourselves because men and and some women pick up on our insecurities and they play on that, right? Mm. It's just a natural thing. If you want your wife at home and she's, you know, saying she's fat or whatever, you say, well, honey, if you had more time to stay home and you could join the gym and you could do it because that serves his purpose or her purpose. Yeah. So that's where it all begins and being held back. And if you have that going on, when you get into the workplace, if you don't see yourself as a talented, smart leader in the mirror, how can you project that in the workplace? And that's what holds women back, for starters. 
So you, you've told me a story before about, I think the example you used, I want you to tell our audience this about, you know, the woman that for whatever reason makes a mistake in a checkbook. And then you t- tell that story because it, it, there, it does go on and on. It perpetuates yeah, that. I see this a lot and, and particularly older women. I don't know about the very young women. I think they're a little more hit, but it starts out with you've done something like, you know, with a checkbook and your husband or your mate says, oh, my God, honey, I can't believe you did that. That was so ditzy. That was just crazy. And she goes, I know, I know. And he goes, oh, well, we're a good team. Thank God you've got me. I'll take care of it, honey. I love you. You're so cute. And you're just a ditz. Okay, now the next time she has her girlfriends around her or whatever, and they're talking, she says, oh, I know what you mean. I was, I did this thing, stupid thing at the bank, and my husband was so kind about it because I'm just, I'm a ditz when it comes to finance. Now you're saying it. Now you go to the office and there's an opportunity for a promotion and somebody says, now there's a little piece that's financial and you go, oh my God, I can't, I was going to apply, but I can't apply now because I'm not good at finance. Those conversations that we allow to happen to us and the way you turn that around, I think, I mean, you have to have your own style, but if your mate says to you, there's such a ditz when it comes to finances, you say, well, I'm not a ditz. I'm thinking things through. I'm working it out. You know, I've been managing our finances for 10 years at the house, and I don't, looking at you, see that you've missed any meals yet. So I'm not a ditz. Yeah. We yeah. got to put it back where it belongs. I think, it, listen, I love when people make an agreement that when they hear a self-limiting belief, they say something to them like, like, and you've, I've said it many, many times. That's not true. That's not my experience of you, right? Like, I love it when, you know, you're, you're in an ecosystem. Sherry, you all are good at this too, to say, no, 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 cancel that. But don't, don't put that out there because there's a lot of evidence that our thoughts have energy. There's a lot of, you know, research that we should not believe everything we think for lots of reasons, right? We cannot be trusted. And when you described that story, I always think of that external locus of control where we hand our power over to someone else and we experience the world through their view of what's really happening instead of through our own. Have you ever done that before? Have you always had a strong sense of yourself? I've pretty much had a sense of myself, which can be seen different ways. I don't think it's, that's a positive way to say it. You know, the, the negative way to say it is I wouldn't take a lot of counsel because if I had to be sure I thought you were smart enough and knew what you were talking about, it wouldn't be that you were just kind and thoughtful. And so that's my, my bad. Because it cut me off from a lot of people that might might have helped me. But that's been my mantra. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. I love, no, I love knowing that. Somewhere maybe between what you're saying and me is going to be about right. Because I have a tendency to, you know, if somebody said it, okay, well, you know, I, I need to deal with it. And I'm trying, I'm really working now on not being invited to every fight that I'm invited to, not letting anything stick on me, being more Teflon, like just because you say it doesn't mean it's my truth. How do women get better at that? Do you think that's, this is Pam, one of those things that only comes with age? Is there anything you could offer, you know, our audience, you know, how they could shift out loud in a way that they start to interrupt that? What do you think? I do think age helps because after decades of having experiences that are similar, you finally just tire of it and start saying your truth, you know, and it makes it a little bit easier. But I think some of the things women need to do is, number one, the way they talk to themselves. Number two, stop taking counsel from people who don't have your best interests at heart. That can be a mate. 
who doesn't want you missing all the time, traveling all the time, doing whatever, can be a relative, a son who wants to take over the business, so mom should retire, she's too old. You know, there's a lot of people that seem to be helpful to you, but may not have your best interests at heart. So I think if we start to analyze why we're doing what we're doing, are we doing it from a peace inside us, from our core, or are we doing it because we're getting a lot of yada, 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 yada all around us? Mm. I heard a Korean's clients who say, well, I talked to my girlfriend and she said this. Well, I talked to my husband and he said this. Well, I talked to my daughter and she thinks this. And it's a woman thing. Because if I ask a woman, what do you want? What do you want? They'll say, oh, I want my husband to be happy at his job. He's just had such a, uh-huh. What do you want? Well, I want my son to grow up and be able to find the right girl. Got it. What do you want? And finally, they will say, you know, my problem is I don't know what I want because they've been secondary for so long at home and at work. It's become a habit. To, it's hard to break. And it also because we've let people expect it of us. So if the expectation is so strong that we're the good person, that we're, we do all the right things, blah, 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 that it's just hard to break out of that shell. Mm. And there's a movie out I wanted to mention it's called Feminism, What Were They Thinking? It's a documentary, 90 Minutes, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, this ton of, you know, Gertrude Stein, all the women back in the day that were fighting for equality, saying the same kinds of things that I'm saying now and facing the same problems we are facing now. It's well worth watching. It's a great education, and it's interesting. Ooh, I'll definitely watch it. And I, somehow there was a spin put on the word feminism that, you know, she's a feminist, like it was a bad thing, and a feminist just believes that women are equal to men. And right, like, like you've lived through all of that. And so as someone that, you know, you started this talking a little bit about 60s and the 70s, and now... Are you stunned that we are where we are and anything, just whatever you want to talk about right now, the Roe v. Wade, what's going on in our, our world? Are you just really surprised, I guess, is the real question about where we're sitting right now and the things that are happening? I'm not surprised, but I'm extremely saddened and I'm fearful for the country. I think when we first fought the battles, we thought we'd won them forever, right? Equality. And now we find out that the young generation, much like I was when I was in the 60s in radio, they're so busy. You know, they've got kids. They've got, they're trying to make a living. Inflation is making them crazy. What's going on with the gas? I mean, there's like a million things out there that they're being bothered by. And the last thing they want to know about is political issues. And so they don't pay attention. In fact, they say things like, oh, I can't even vote because it's just, I don't like anybody. So I'm not going to vote. Or I don't even know what's going on. My husband tells me some things, but, you know, I, I just, it, it depresses me. Little by little, we said, we're not going to watch. We're not going to watch. And so consequently behind our backs, all these things have been set up to happen. And Roe v. Wade is just the beginning. It's going to be, of course, gay marriage, contraception, interracial marriage, probably the woman's right to vote. There's a whole movement on taking away a woman's right to vote. Because they're saying that anything that isn't literally spoken in the documents created in the evil in the eons ago, we aren't supposed to do. And all of these things fall in that list. You're very good to read everything. Like you, you don't just take the news from the source that you agree with. I always love my conversations with you. 
because you always bring these deep, dark kind of, I read this and this is a movement and this is happening. And I, oh, you know, I always think, are you kidding me? This is, are you kidding me? This is happening. And then I go investigate a little bit and I go, nope, it's, it's happening. It's, it is mind boggling. And when I think about all of that, you said something super important. We cannot be so distracted by technology and everything that we tap out as hard as it is. If we don't lean in and make up our own mind, this is not going to get any better. Agreed. Agreed. And in fact, it's gone from taking away rights to a, a hatred that's never been felt before in this country for women. I've talked about the incels in my blog, the involuntarily celibate men who have now, you, you talk about worrying about the Proud Boys and, you know, some of those groups. This is the next big wave, the incels. And there's four different groups of these kinds of guys. They blame women for everything that has happened to them badly. And they are wanting to kill women. And they're very violent. And they're, you know, domestic terrorism is can be a label that would easily apply to them. But nobody's paying attention because it seems so crazy. A bunch of guys who hate women. I you know, what does that mean? Then they're not that many. There's hundreds and thousands of them. And it's going to become a big political issue and it's gonna be terrorism. And I'm very concerned. Mm. Well and and it is scary and you said it, you know, it sounds so far fetched. There's no way it can be true. Yet it is. Like when we watched you know more about this, when they were remind me the group that was trying to take the insurrectionists that went January 6th to the Capitol. Not that, but the, where they were that, let's talk about that. But when they were trying to kidnap that, was she the governor? Oh, Michigan governor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you on paper, if I told you there that, that everything that happened in that right. would be like, that could never happen. It was happening. And I just think people go, Oh, that's not real. That it happened just like the January 6th thing. The worst thing, the worst thing for me is nothing happens to these people. They're mostly guys. I mean, they do have a bunch of stupid women following them, but they're mostly guys and they're carrying guns and they're acting in a very, you know, insurrectionist way. And when they get caught, they get like a slap on the hand. And I'm just stunned by this because if you know that the penalty is so minor, you know, you're not going to stop doing it. So I'm, ugh. well. I, I have said this before. Kathy Taylor said to me one time, can you believe when people vote against their own self-interest? And I always think, well, I did that as a gay woman. I, I mean, you know, for a long time. So yes. And I look back and go, what was I thinking? And I think that's happening now. So when you say, you know, there, there are, I, I, I don't want to, this, this is, this is not a podcast for everyone. And that's fine. This needs to, for, for me to be just this awareness that for us to lean in and for us to continue to be diligent. And I'm going to say this, you are leading the pack and you, you kind of mentioned that blog. Let's talk a little bit about that because you're putting a lot of these stories in your blog. And I, and I happen to know your following is huge. And a lot of people that were like, what? I don't know. Now they're kind of like, okay, wait a minute. There's something to that. So let's talk a little bit about your blog and the name of it is Boss Mayor. Art com is your website, but the blog is Boss Mayor. Tell me what a Boss Mayor is first. BossMayorsArt.com is the site. And a Boss Mayor is an older, wiser female horse with the most common sense. She's the one who left in charge of the herd. 
We'll take the young colts if they smart off and cause trouble, pin our ears back and walk them out of the herd. And they will be kept out of the herd until they learn their manners. And I'm very fond of boss mares. <laughs> you resemble that. Yeah. com started out as a place where we talked about horses and art and, you know, milder things. And it evolved into a political site where we say no holes barred, anything that we need to say about what's going on and dig up things that are, I think go on for months where people kind of glance at it. And I, I envision them saying exactly what you said. That's kind of crazy. She's out there again. But in a few months, it starts to come around and you start hearing it and then it builds. And then by the time people go, hey, this incel thing is incredibly horrible. I'm back here saying, yeah, 12 months ago, it was pretty horrible, but nobody was paying attention. You're a visionary in that sense. You you have, you're, you and Cheryl both weirdly, not weirdly, you're incredibly accurate in all of that. And you you kind of casually mentioned the Bosmere art. You are an artist as well. So I know some people will see this. Most people will listen to it. But behind you is a giant easel. And this is your real passion or, or well, actually writing for politically is your passion right now, I think. But you also have a lot of artwork. I'm the proud owner of a couple of those pieces. Thank you for that. Thank yeah, you. For sure. You're right. I do it for recreation. I've the Problem starts, though, I start taking my political views and putting them into the art. That doesn't take me away from what I need to relax and you know, get away from, which is the political thing and the news and all of that. But it's very hard if you write or paint or speak not to stay on this topic because it isn't going to matter so much for people like me, right? I'll be what? By the time this thing explodes 20 years from now, I'll be beyond it. But these young women are going to get to go through what my colleagues and I had gone through for decades. And they're going to wake up one day and go, wait a minute. What do you mean I can't get along without my husband coming to the bank? What do you mean I can't, you know, get an abortion? What do you mean? We mean you didn't pay attention. Because all of this can be turned around. It, it can only be turned around in a couple of ways, but it can be turned around. And that is if you vote these right-wing Republicans out, and put Democrats or independents or people with common sense into these positions, then the Senate can take Roe v. Wade and make it law of the land, and that will negate what the Supreme Court has done. I'm going to tell you something. Maybe this is controversial. I'm loving Liz Cheney right now. How are you feeling about Liz? I am very fond of Liz Cheney. I think everybody is. I don't agree with all of her policies, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that she has integrity, that she has stood up despite the slings and arrows of her faint-hearted colleagues. She cares about the country, and I think she's a stellar person in that regard. And, you know, if it came down to it, she'd get my vote, and I'm a Democrat. Me too. I feel the same way. And I'll tell you what I like the most, if there's such a thing, but about her is there is this wave of people that, you know, believe that they don't want a politician, that they want a business person, that they want somebody that's wealthy, that they want somebody other than a politician. And I believe strongly that the skill of a politician is very undervalued. And I want a politician in the sense that someone that can find common ground, someone that can see both sides of the issue, someone that can navigate, you know, more of a win-win. So I, you know, somewhere between 
you know, we, we, we mislabeled feminists. I think we've mislabeled politicians. We, they've gotten a bad name. There's some really great ones on both sides of the aisle. And I, I would like to see us, maybe you and I can, can, you know, send something out into the ether where people can start to value the idea that we debate ideas and not each other. That's, that's just been maddening that we're not able to, to separate those two. You're right. It's like saying, I'm going in for heart surgery. I don't want a surgeon. I want a businessman. I, no, I don't think so. I, I want the surgeon. And we say, well, politics isn't like surgery. Well, it is because we're now getting people in the older days. You saw the Liz Cheney's whose whole family comes from politics. So she's been immersed in and she knows the ins and outs. There are people who actually went to school to study, you know, being political around the political scene. And then there were people like these crazy people who run bars in Colorado who carry guns and, you know, can't make a sentence. And they're determining what's going to happen with our lives. So I think we are electing people who have qualified. Well, we I would hope that, you know, we would be more mindful of somebody that can see both sides, not somebody that we don't like them because they're sensitive to the other side. And I would hold a sign for you, sister, any day. I'd stand on a corner. I still think you have a future in politics if you uh, ever decide to do it. So there's that. I, I wanted to run for governor at one point, but then I came to my senses. So you couldn't take the pay cut. There no <laughs> now you have a, you also have a book it's called grab it back and it's exactly what everyone thinks grab it back means but tell us a little bit about the title what made you write the book so you go from writing these amazing you know love stories lesbian love you know novels to grab it back tell us a little bit about that well of course it came from the former president's remarks to access hollywood about what women would let him do any woman would let you do if you had enough money and fame and Cheryl and I were both incensed, and we decided to write something quickly. And she said, let's call it Grab It Back, based on what he said. And so it basically is talking about the fact that women have given up their power, you know. And and I had a piece I wanted to read to you if I could lay my hands on it. And so at the end of every chapter, we have a little thing called Something to Think About, which I used to do on radio. And in the end of the first chapter of Grab It Back, I'll just read you this, and it'll give you a sense of what the book's about. No one can give you equality. We have to own our power and take back equality. Women, by virtue of their vaginas, own the seat of pleasure for heterosexual men and control the way in which men can replicate themselves. That kind of power frightens some men, so they try to regulate sex, contraception, and abortion. When a man grabs your pussy, he's trying to grab your power. It's time to grab it back. Basically what the book's about. Wow. And you wrote that before Roe v. Wade. You wrote that two years ago. Here. Yeah. I remember reading it thinking, oh, come on. <laughs> and then here we are. This is, this is what I'm saying. You, if people need to be paying attention. So listen, I want people to follow you. I, there's only one thing I did not say to you today that I wanted to make sure and say to you. And it's a thank you because you were on a panel. You said something that was a soundbite that has been repeated back to me over and over. When I There's two things that people talk about when I see them on the street or when I see somebody that saw you on that panel. And they are, how can I have a cup of coffee with Pam? So you have a long list of admirers that want to just get a little a little dose of, of you. And 
The other thing you said that has been incredibly powerful is you said to women, quit trading compliments for cash. And I know we're at the end, but would you unpack that just a bit for our audience? You bet. One of the ways that we get taken advantage of or allow ourselves to be taken advantage of is because we're praise junkies. And if you praise us enough and tell us what good girls we are and how wonderful we are and how needed we are and how the office could not ever run without us. And oh my God, if I didn't have you, I don't know what I'd do. You are the heart and soul of this operation. Oh my gosh. We will take that over money. We will trade the compliment for cash. And I think you've got to be aware. We all love compliments, you know, and I don't want them to stop, but it can't be let me take you to lunch as the way they're going to compensate you. Ask for your value and your worth. Don't trade compliments for cash. That is so powerful. And I've traded it many times. I've wanted to be, I've created my value out of how somebody else perceives my value to the organization. I've not negotiated well. I've not demanded more. And what I do love about this generation that is coming up after us is they seem to be more willing to to do this. But I, I, I know you're cheering them on to be even better. Having said that, I, I get on calls often and people are, you know, well, I don't know if I should ask for more money. And I don't know. I have a podcast with Meg Myers Morgan, who wrote, you know, everything is negotiable. She tells some great stories. So the shout out to Meg. And, you know, she said she still gets it every day. Like, you know, young women come in going, well, I mean, should I ask for a little bit more? And so, listen, I, I think we all need to have more confidence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you for your time. This is not a one and done. I want, I want to keep, I want to keep talking to you. We'll do it again soon. And I just want to say thank you. I want to say a personal thank you for, for just because I reached out to you at the, somebody, Jim Stovall said, you have to go meet Pam McKissick. And the only thing I could think of is, Oh no, she scares me. I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to reach out to her. And the next time I saw him, he said, did you meet her? And I said, no, but I went and got in the car that day. I sent you an email or a message through LinkedIn and you responded. And I said, I just wondered if I could have 15 or 20 minutes. I'm telling this story like you've never heard it, but I want people to hear it. And you said, sure, happy to. Responded immediately. And I was like, what? So I went to meet you for 15 or 20 minutes and I wanted to talk to you about getting my, we, we were writing a book at the time, my business partner and I, Wally, and I wanted to talk to you about getting it published. And I was so nervous to meet you that I took my wife because she's, everybody loves her. Even so, even if you and I are going to get along, I'm like, well, at least Rosemary. Really with blondes. Exactly. So we're sitting there and at some point, I mean, immediately I was like, oh my gosh, I have so much to learn. And you called your wife, Cheryl. She met us. We, I think we closed the place down that night. Yes. Yes, we did. Four or five hours later and what started out to be me being nervous and wanting to pick your brain a little bit has turned into this beautiful friendship. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for making me think bigger. I'm not going to tell the story about how every time I saw you, you kept asking me if I had been fired or not. And you kept saying you need to be fired. But, you know, you definitely pinned my ears back now that I know it's a boss there. And you made me think bigger. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I love you dearly. You know that. I do, and I'm super grateful, and we'll do it again soon. So thank you so much, and we'll do, we'll do it again soon. Thank you, Tracy Spears.
If you're still here, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate, and review, and then tell all your friends. I want to know what inspired you, what your big takeaways were, and I'm curious, what will you go do because of what you heard today? How will you shift out loud? Let's do it again soon. 